You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. At our church, we love expository preaching, verse by verse. You guys that are here, you know we do this. And so we are coming toward the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um, Just about a month of that left, a little over a month. Uh, So we find ourselves in chapter 14 today, Mark chapter 14. If you got a Bible or a journal or an app, you can open that up or turn it on. And we'll be covering verses 43 through 52. So let me go ahead and read the text for us. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, uh, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, but, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Um, it is the basis and authority of our faith, our practice, our lives. And so, Lord, we come to the Bible today eager to hear from you, to have your spirit move in our lives. And, Lord, I pray for those that are in this room, um, those that are watching online. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help them to um, see their own sin, see your own glory, that they would uh, repent anew. Maybe someone for the first time would repent today, Lord. And, and God, that we would give our whole lives over to you, that we would submit to you as king and make you Lord of all. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, So what we see here today is a text of betrayal. Um, You guys remember when LeBron James left Cleveland the first time, and he had that press conference, and he said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Well, I didn't care about that because I've never been a LeBron fan. Uh, Michael Jordan's the GOAT. Can I get a witness? All right, we got some LeBron fans in the room. That's okay, though. Um, but, but I remember my friend Michael, who, who lives in a suburb of Cleveland. He's a big Cavaliers fan. He's not so vocal about it now because they're not any good. But when, uh, when LeBron was there, I remember that was, a, that was a devastating blow to him because he was a big Cavaliers fan. He went to Miami for a little while, and he hated LeBron James during that time. And then LeBron came back to Cleveland, and he was the savior of Cleveland again. Um, well, you see that betrayal and how it, like, how it affects people, that it, it's different than just being on the other team, but to switch teams is a, is a whole other level of betrayal. And, it, and when Judas betrayed Jesus, it had to communicate that type of betrayal. It had to be shocking to the other disciples, um, even the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling elders of Israel at the time, probably even the Romans. But of course, it came as no shock to Jesus. He predicted it. He knew it was coming. Um, he, he talked about it at the Last Supper. Um, he predicted uh, not only his betrayal, but also his denial of all his disciples. And so what we see happen is after Judas betrays him, Jesus is abandoned. 
abandoned and he's left alone. Now, this is not unusual for Jesus. He was um, reclusive at times in his ministry. I've, I've often wondered if Jesus was an extrovert or an introvert. He was probably a perfect balance of both since he's the perfect man. Um, but uh, my wife and I are the, are the very imperfect balance of those two things, those two qualities. If you know my wife, you're very lucky uh, because she's very introverted. And, um, and I'm the opposite, very extroverted. I was on a plane recently and there was a wasp on the plane. And I, I just instinctively took my hat off and hit the wasp and stomped on it and picked it up. And the flight attendant screamed and, and the people on the plane cheered for me. And I was, I was so happy with myself. <laughs> I was like, I saved everyone's life on this plane. And so I was telling my wife about that. And this is how an extrovert and an introvert deal with things. I thought it was a great thing. And then it was one of those cheap flights because that's how I fly super cheap. And so there were no snacks and drinks on the plane, but then they were giving me snacks and drinks to show their gratitude. I was like the king of that plane um, and, and coach though. And, um, and then, and I was telling my wife about this and she was like, I'm so glad I wasn't with you. I would have been mortified. And I was like, why? You would be married to the hero. Like, that's a great thing. Um, but, but so we see in Jesus like a little bit of both ends of that. There's some extroversion in his teaching and healing, and, and he's kind of drawing crowds himself. But we also see Jesus be pretty reclusive, that he, he withdraws away from the crowds. Um, he spends most of his time with his 12 disciples and, and several other disciples um, that he is pouring into. So he has some close relationships, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't seem to put a whole lot of effort into knowing everyone in Israel. Israel. But what at the end of his life, what happens is those few close relationships even dissipate. They even run away. And, and what we have is this violence that leads to the abandonment of Jesus. Now, there's a, a core theological truth that we need to understand in this, and I want to try to communicate that to you today. Um, I've got two points in today's sermon. The first one is we need to understand that the violence of men actually is what God used to produce grace from him. And so the violence of men produced the grace of God, that through the death on the cross, ultimately, uh, is what happened, but the arrest of Jesus, beginning with his arrest, also his flogging, his torture, and then his crucifixion, is what produced uh, the ability for you to receive grace and be forgiven of your sins. Uh, secondly, we'll see that the abandonment of Christ, um, those leaving him and him suffering by himself on the cross, um, he went to that end to save us. And so the abandonment of Christ actually results in family for us, a sense of belonging. Let's look at those two things. Number one, the violence. Uh, the violence of men produced the grace of God. Now, in this passage, we see violence from both sides of the battle. We see violence from the authorities as they come armed. They come with clubs and swords and torches. Um, and then we also see violence from the disciples. Um, they're carrying swords. So um, there are some people who take the position of a pacifist that 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 basically all Christians should be passive, that there is never an occasion for war or self-defense or anything like that. Um, that's not my position. Um, so I, I do think that we have a right to defend ourselves, Second Amendment, all those things. Um, I agree with those things. But what I do believe is that a Christian should not be marked by violence. Um, and, and so when we see violence, um, it, is, it is antithetical to the peace that God has called us into as Christians. Now, 
That seems to stand at odds at times with the Bible, particularly military campaigns, for example, that God commands his people to go on, or um, the defense that God calls his people to, or the commands that God puts on governments to execute people who are uh, criminals and who need to be executed, or God's wrath himself. Um, that is poured out on people throughout the history of the Bible, as well as what will be poured out in a wrathful vengeance at the final day. So is there a contradiction there? I would say I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because violence um, in an individual has to do with the morality of the soul, but in a sense of authority. So for example, in government, um, it is ordered. Um, the, the Bible tells us that the government is supposed to wield the sword of God in a godly way uh, to keep order in a government. And so the issue is not so much violence as much as it is authority. So who has the authority to carry out and execute justice? And in this passage, um, it would seem that Rome is that. That Rome and the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling part of of the Jewish nation, which was ruled over top of that by Rome, they were the ones that possessed the authority. So they were the ones that wielded the sword. They were the ones that were in control, legally speaking, of all things. And and so um, the question becomes, were the disciples supposed to just lay down and be arrested? What's supposed to happen? And what we're going to see is that Jesus did not defend himself. Jesus did not take up a sword and fight and try to, and try to escape this. His disciples did, and he had some things to say about that. Verse 43 in our passage, it says, while he was still speaking. So this is on the heels of his prayer and his admonitions to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes, one of the twelve, and he has with him a crowd with swords and clubs, it says, from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Now remember... Jesus was not on the run. He was not hiding from the authorities. And it would, have, it would make sense to us. Jesus knew his arrest was coming. He knew Judas was betraying him. He knew Judas was, was bringing these officers to arrest him. It would make sense for us, for Jesus, to go on the run. Flee the country, if you will. But instead, Jesus walked straight to the most common place he could have went, which was the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, In John 18, 2, it tells us this. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, speaking of this garden. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. I don't want you to miss this, church. Jesus went to the most obvious place that he could be found. He didn't go hide. He went to the one place that it would be easiest to find him. See, Jesus was in control of all of these events. He wasn't taken by surprise or arrested uh, to his own shock, but rather he laid his life down for us. He was in control of the whole thing. He did not resist his arrest. He would ultimately not resist the cross. And these men come with clubs, swords, and torches, and it strikes at a core of a theological truth, and that's this, is that mankind has always opposed God. We have always, for, for our, all of our history, we have set ourselves to be opposed to God. It's the doctrine that the Bible teaches of depravity, is that we have chosen our own way rather than God's way. You can see it on a small level in your own lives, and you can see it on a big level in the lives of, of mankind as a whole. Mankind does not hesitate in madness to oppose a sovereign God who's created all things. And if God exists and he's all-powerful and he's all-good, why would, in the world would we oppose him? Well, the reason is, is because he commands what he deserves, which is worship and glory and honor, and that creeps in on the idols that we've created in our own life. And we want those things. I'm thankfully out of the season of life where I have toddlers, 
Amen. Those of you that have toddlers, I'm sorry. <laughs> Grace to you. My prayers are with you. But, um, but the other day, we, my wife and I were somewhere, and we saw some toddlers throwing the you know, typical two, three-year-old toddler temper tantrums. And I was like, man, I'm so glad we're done with that. And she's like, well, we got our own set of problems now. And I'm like, listen, I know, I understand that. But at least my kids don't kick and scream at me, right? <laughs> and, and, it, and as silly as it is for a two-year-old to try to physically fight his father, we will fight the will of God like we can somehow overcome him and win. And like a child that's unconcerned of the consequences because we want that ice cream cone or we want that toy, we will chase after the things that we want, our hobbies, our interests, the things that we feel like brings us happiness, but it's really a fleeting joy. We will chase after those things with all we got, and we will find ourselves opposing God in the process. Sometimes we realize it. Sometimes we don't. But we will nevertheless find ourselves as enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes us. Verse 48, Jesus speaks to his enemies and he says, if you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, he's, he's basically saying, are you coming to me like, like I was in people's homes stealing things, like I'm some common criminal? Are you coming to me in that way? Jesus is pointing out the irony in the whole situation that they're bringing weaponry and violence to arrest him when he is going to lay down his life and surrender. Luke 22 gives us this truth of what the disciples do in return. They take up arms to defend themselves. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? This tells us the disciples were packing heat, right? So these weren't like wimpy guys that Jesus had chosen. They were ready to fight if the occasion called for it. And they asked Jesus, hey, should we get our swords out and start fighting? Is this the time? You see, they were anxiously awaiting for the kingdom of God. That's what they were anticipating. In the Jewish mindset, the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the nation, the empire of Rome that was oppressing them. They were looking for Jesus not to die and raise from the dead and have a heavenly kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom in Israel overthrowing the Roman empire at that time in their life. And so in their mind, they're revolutionaries. They're willing to grab the swords and fight. Jesus, is this the time? Is this the time that we begin to establish the kingdom? Well, the Gospels don't tell us that Jesus gives any answer to that until Peter uh, strikes with his sword. Mark doesn't mention his name, but another Gospel does. It tells us that in verse 47, the one who draws his sword is none other than Peter. And that's what we would expect from Peter, right? Those of you that have been with our church, you've been walking through the Gospel of Mark with us, you see Peter's a very brash personality. He's very extroverted, very outgoing, and, and he's got a little bit of a temper on him as well. And so verse 47 says, One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, I don't think Peter was aiming for his ear. I think Peter was going for the kill shot here and just missed a little bit in all of his excitement. But the, the Gospels actually tell us that, that, that Jesus rebukes Peter for this act. He says, put your sword away, for if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Jesus is not going to fight, he's going to surrender. And he actually even heals the servant whose ear was cut off. We've, the Bible tells us his name is Malchus. In verse 47, um, it, it tells us that when his ear is cut off, that, that you see this act of violence, but then Jesus later brings healing to him. And what's happening is this cosmic misunderstanding of how Jesus' kingdom was going to be established. We still misunderstand it today. 
We, we, we struggle in our, in our finite human minds to grasp how Jesus is going to establish and advance his kingdom. I mean, you've seen it in history, the Crusades, the, the, the Christian, so-called Christian Crusades, that we can, we can turn the world Christian with the sword, that we can advance on the nations and threaten them with their lives to become Christian, and if they don't, we'll kill them, and that's how we'll make the whole world Christian. It's, it's antithetical to the gospel that Jesus preached. You see, the Roman authorities and the disciples were both wrong. They were making it out to be a political kingdom that was, that was at war with one another. But our misunderstanding of Christ's kingdom is in our own lives too, and we don't have to look far. Practically speaking, whether we cognitively think this or not, practically speaking, we think that Jesus and God exist to bless us and make our life more peaceable and more happy. That's not his purpose for you. Happiness can be a byproduct of God's grace in your life, and he gives us practical joys, but your reason for breathing in air right now is not your own happiness and fulfillment. Your reason for breathing air and having a pulse right now is to bring worship and glory to God. That's your purpose. And when, and when we confuse that and make the purpose of God to please us rather than us to please him, then we have gotten the gospel backwards. And we find ourselves unfit for worship. You see, Christ's kingdom is not about your glory, it's about his. And these men are fighting in this passage 2,000 years ago. They're fighting for their place in Palestine, over land, of, of their finite lives, their 70 or 80 years. But Jesus had something much greater for them than what they could have ever imagined. In Luke twenty two fifty one, 51, Jesus says no more of this. He puts an end to the violence. He says no more of this, and he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. He picks the ear up off the ground and, and heals him, puts the ear back on and makes him new again. Jesus was not a robber to be taken by force. He was a redeemer and a healer. He was not a wannabe revolutionary king. He was an actual king who was going to sacrifice himself for his own kingdom, citizens of his kingdom. You see, the, the way that Christ won the victory was by surrendering. And that's why we struggle to understand it. Because we think the way to victory is to strong arm everyone. But Christ's victory was won by surrendering. And guess what? That's your victory as well. You've been striving your whole life to please God. You never will on your own. You need, you need to hear me on that. Look at me, church. You will never please God on your own strength. The Bible says that on your best day, when God looks at your best deeds, it's like he is looking on a filthy rag. Your righteousness is that to him. You are wholeheartedly falling short of the glory of God, and you need another to step in in your place. You don't win by fighting. You don't advance to heaven by working hard. You go to heaven and attain eternal life by surrendering, by giving up all of those things, by admitting that you can't get there on your own might, that's how you win, the same way your Savior won. So you don't win by fighting, you win by surrendering to Christ who won the victory for you. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, it is easier to fight for Christ than to die for him. Now don't miss this, because this is what the disciples fell into. It is easier to fight for Christ than to die for him, because it sounds very noble to fight for him, right? But we can't adequately carry that out. It's easier to fight for Christ than to die for him. But Christ's good soldiers overcome, not by taking away other people's lives, but by laying down their own. Now, I realize you guys aren't 
at least I hope, not trying to kill anybody. Um, but practically speaking, I think this can play itself out in your life just by looking at how you interact with people. I work with a guy named Jeremy Berry. He likes to argue. I like to argue. Our favorite pastime is to argue about crap with each other. That's just what we do. You want to go to lunch and argue about stuff? Yeah, let's do it. And we'll just like pick something to fight about, right? But if I'm not careful, my argumentative spirit can overflow into evangelism or apologetics or the way that I speak to my wife or the way that I interact with my kids. And God has not called you, Christian, into being in an argumentative spirit all the time. If you find yourself fighting with people all the time, you might not be the most violent person, but you're not, you're not, uh, you're not showing the way of Jesus to people. Do you find yourself fighting with others more or laying yourself down for others more? I mean, just how do you interact on social media when you're hiding behind a keyboard? Are you arguing more or hitting that care emoji more? Like, like, where is the posture of your heart? And if you find yourself in an argumentative spirit all the time, it might be a proof to you from the Spirit of God that you need some reorientation of your soul. Because the gospel doesn't build in us an argumentative fighting nature. It builds in us a, a selfless nature where we will lay ourselves down, not by our own strength or because we're good people, but because Jesus has changed us. We lay ourselves down for the good of other people so that they can see the goodness of Jesus and the gospel portrayed in our lives, and it can change theirs. And in stark contrast to all this violence, we see peace in Christ. He's peaceful. He says, enough of all this. We're not going to fight. I'll let myself be arrested. So you have the Romans fighting. You have the, the Sanhedrin's bodyguards Security team fighting. You have the disciples cutting people's ears off. Everyone's fighting madness. And you have two people in this passage who are peaceful. One of them is Jesus. And the other one, ironically, is Judas, who started the whole fight. Isn't that, isn't that the way it usually works? Like the people that start the fight, they're always like the ones that just kind of step back and let it happen. Verse 44 says, The betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to this interaction between Judas and Jesus. Now, I, I don't believe that Judas is redeemed. I don't think we're going to kick it in heaven with him. I could be wrong. I'm not a judger of hearts, but Jesus does say, he makes a statement that it would be better for Judas if he had never been born. So, um, but, I, but I do think that Judas is, is trying to accomplish what he sees as the right thing. Now, there's a selfish part of it. He gets 30 pieces of silver, of course. But I, but I, I tend to think that, that Judas is, is trying to take matters into his own hands when they belong in Christ's hands. And in, in that, Judas is doing what most of us are guilty of as well. We, we, like, how many times do we try to fix things before we pray about things? I mean, if we're honest, maybe 100% of the time. I only take things to God when I can't fix it myself. And then I'll disguise it under the fact of like, well, I don't want to bother the Lord with this. I want to try to fix this myself. I just mess stuff up more often. And Judas here is taking matters into his own hands, which is a cosmic sin. I think one of the things he may have in mind is Psalm chapter 2, which was a a song they would have sung often as disciples. Jesus taught through the Old Testament with his disciples. So I believe Jesus probably taught on this psalm. 
um, and, and explained how this psalm was messianic, meaning that it, it prophesied about Jesus being the Messiah. In Psalm 210, the, I want to read a few verses from that song. It says, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. That, that it's a song about the rulers of the earth ultimately paling in comparison to the Lord himself. That no earthly king can, can conquer the true sovereign king, the Lord. And so perhaps Judas thought that if he initiated this fight, that it would incite a revolt, and ultimately all the kings of the earth would fall to who he calls his rabbi. Verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And so as he carries out this task, I'm sure uh, Judas's voice was trembling as he comes up to Jesus and calls him rabbi, which means master or teacher. Now, it was not customary for uh, a Jewish man to kiss another Jewish man as a greeting. Um, it was actually quite common in Rome, but it wasn't necessarily a Jewish culture thing. But Judas uses that as the sign of who he is going to identify as Jesus, the Messiah, the Son. And Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now Judas kisses the Son, but he does not take refuge in Christ. He does not make his hope the eternal sanctity of Jesus. Rather, he makes his hope in the temporal military might of what he views. And so where do you place your hope? Do you find it in your security, in your job, in your family, in your spouse or significant other? Where do you place your hope? Do you kiss the sun in genuineness or out of or out of pretense? Are you sincere today? Have you come here to worship Jesus today? Or have you come here because it's Sunday and it's the societally acceptable thing to do? Check your motives and look at your heart because Christ is gracious for now, but when Christ returns, his patience will run out and he will come with wrath. And he will come uh, rightfully executing his enemies. But for now, Christ is patient. He is long-suffering. He is gracious toward you and your slowness to get it together. We continually fail him and fail him and fail him and we sin and we sin and we sin, yet he continues to show us grace and show us grace and show us grace. Let me read to you from the Gospel of Matthew what Jesus says after Judas kisses him. Matthew twenty six fifty. Jesus says to him, friend. Just let that sink in for a second. Judas has just lit the spark that is setting off this cosmic treason. As a representative of sinful mankind, he has betrayed the one perfect man. And Jesus looks right back into his eyes and he says, friend. In a derogatory way, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish rulers uh, called Jesus a friend of sinners. They said this to make fun of him, and they said this to, to prove his unholiness, which was not true. But to the bitter end, we see Jesus looking at his enemies and saying, Friend, today, October 17, 2021, Jesus looks at you in your sin, and he says, Friend. 
He looks at those outside of the covenant relationship with him and he draws them to himself by calling them friend. But that will not eternally be the case. One day we will be washed clean from our sin. Those of us who have repented and trusted in Jesus will not have another evil thought. We will not be tempted to stray away from him. I I can't explain what that will feel like, but we will be holy, redeemed, and pure, and good as he is. But the enemies of God will remain in their enemy state, and he will no longer call them friend at that point. But for now, he's a gracious savior. He's a patient savior, longing for repentance from his sheep, and he calls us friend. You see, he's got great strength, but he has withheld it for now. He has great wrath that will come one day, but he has withheld it for now. They get a taste of it. John 18, 6 tells us well, another thing that happens in the garden that night is he's arrested. It says, Jesus said to them, I am he. Using the words I am, which I love when Jesus says that because I think it's a hat tip back to when God himself told Moses, I am that I am. I think it's Jesus proclaiming his deity. And when he says to them, I am he, it says they drew back and fell to the ground. The Bible describes the, a, a symbolic sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. So he wasn't drawing a sword from his hip, but rather a sword came from his mouth that the power lies in the word of God. That when he says, I am he, it took these able-bodied soldiers and it knocked them on their butts. It showed them the power that God possesses, yet he restrained it for the love of people like you and me who are sinners and do not deserve it. He restrained that power so he could willingly lay his life down. You see, the violence against God produced grace for us. The violence against God, though, will one day be turned back on their own heads. But for now, the violence of man has produced grace for you and me. And when you shake your fist at God, he opens his arms to you. When you deny his will, he lovingly calls you into repentance. He calls you a friend every time you act like you're his enemy. And he was abandoned for you. The second theological point I want you to see is that the abandonment of Christ means family for us. You see, in this passage, we see the utter abandonment of Jesus. And the gospel is this great exchange that on the cross, our sin was put on Christ. And at the cross, Christ's righteousness is imputed or put onto us. And because Jesus is abandoned and left to wrath, we are now surrounded in belonging and grace within his church. Like it, you, there are no prerequisites to show up and belong in this church. I mean, you don't have to look around the room very much to know that's the case, right? We got some riffraff in here. One of them's got a microphone right now. And, and the reality is, is that is the beautiful picture of the gospel, is that there are no prerequisites and there never will be. That, that we're going to get to heaven one day and there are no credentials that need to be checked. We don't have to turn in a resume at the pearly gates. We just say, I'm his. Jesus That's my big brother. He did everything for me. He's my advocate. He's my mediator. He's my savior. It's all him. And Jesus went through this as it was prophesied in scripture, fulfilling it. It was necessary. His death, his passion was necessary to save us. Verse 49, he expresses a little bit of frustration in his humanity. He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You didn't arrest me then. But then he says, but... Let the scriptures be fulfilled. I just imagine Jesus holding out his hands for them to tie him up. You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced separation from his father. 
He experienced separation from his closest friends on earth. They're going to flee from him. We're going to see in the coming weeks as we continue through the end of the Gospel of Mark, and he will suffer alone on the cross. But his disciples give us a clear warning as they flee. They give us a good warning to not flee the faith that we have committed our lives to. Remember when Jesus talked to the, the rich young ruler? And he, and he talked to him about, he told him to go and sell everything he owns to help the poor. And after that encounter, and he does some teaching with his disciples, uh, Peter says this to Jesus in Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, Peter's not lying here. He's not, he's not you know, puffing himself up. He's just stating a fact. They had left everything. They had left their, their professions. We see a tax collector. We see fishermen. We see different professions that they had. We know that some of them were married, which means some of them could have even had kids. Um, they leave their families and kind of go on this ministry tour with Jesus. They, they really did leave everything to follow him. But in Mark 14, 50, it says that they all left him and fled. What a dynamic change in four chapters of this gospel. In Mark 10, 28, they left all. In Mark 14, 50, they all left. What changed? Fear crept in. You see, prior commitment means very little if you don't finish well. Ask anyone who's been divorced, or if you've been through that, you know what this is like. People who are divorced don't, don't look at their former spouse and be like, they did really great. I'm really happy for that time. No, you could have 50 great years of your marriage, and if you abandon your spouse in the 51st year, it's not a successful marriage. You've not been faithful to the promises that you made. And, and I don't think it's an accident that God, God uses marriage as an example of the gospel in the Bible, that Jesus is our groom and we as the church are his bride, and it describes us as really an unfaithful bride. We don't carry out our promises to him well, but when we signed up for this, when we repented of sin and trusted in Jesus and became a Christian, we committed our lives to this. And you're called to finish well. And it doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that you're going to wiggle out of God's promises that he's made to you. But what it does mean is that you, as a child of the king, have a high responsibility to act like it. Just like I tell the Basham kids, y'all are, are in this family, you need to act like you got some sense, right? They usually don't, but we try our best. Jesus says to, I think, New Heights Church sometimes, y'all are in this family, you need to act like you got some sense. It's a sharp reminder to us that week after week we should renew our covenants. We... We're not taking communion today, we're fasting from it, but that's why we take communion every week, just to remind ourselves that, that we're saved by grace through the death of Jesus on the cross. We remind ourselves that there's nothing we could do to be perfect, to get to heaven. If we, don't, we don't act well as a way to get to heaven. We act well because we have a good Savior. Let's finish with the last two verses, verses 51 and 52. This is an interesting ending to the passage, isn't it? Naked man running away. You've got a streaker here in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and as, as a pastor, I always love coming to passages like this. Like, how in the world do I preach something like this? Um, so let me try. Verse 51. <clears throat> a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, many scholars say the reason that Mark includes this little story at the end here is to just show the nature of the mob. 
that they were willing to arrest people who did nothing wrong. Um, What's further interesting about this is that early church tradition, excuse me, maintains that this is John Mark himself, the author of the gospel. If you know anything about the author of this gospel, we know him as Mark. Um, You know that he traveled with Barnabas, who's his cousin, and the apostle Paul. Um, He did ministry in the early church. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, and, And we're really not sure that he had any interaction with Jesus. But according to church tradition, when I say that, I mean like the first few centuries of, of A.D. Um, they held to an oral tradition and belief that this was Mark himself. Now, he's sleeping, you know, either naked or in his underwear, and he's covering up with a blanket, which is, you know, that's perfectly fine when you're camping in Palestine. That's what you do, I guess. And so he's sleeping at the Garden of Gethsemane, which probably indicates he was following Jesus, seeing miracles, listening to his teaching. And in the middle of the night, when all the commotion comes up, he gets up, he's got his cover on him, that's how he's covered up, and they begin to try to arrest him, and he does what he knows to do, he runs away. And, you know, he flees naked, so maybe that's why Mark didn't include his own name, because it maybe was a little bit of an embarrassing story. But nevertheless, you see, he's following Jesus. So there's more than just the 12. There are people there who are interested in what's happening, but yet when push comes to shove, all flee him. All abandon him. Because abandonment had to happen both physically and spiritually for our adoption to take place. You know what the antithesis of abandonment is? It's adoption. I mean, it's a crime. Child abandonment is a crime that you will be punished for. If you have children and you don't take care of them, if you abandon them, you are a criminal. You will be arrested and punished. But the antithesis of abandonment is a family saying, I don't know that child, I don't owe anything to that child, but I will adopt that child. The uh, adoption, this is personal for me where my wife and I have adopted a few kids, like the the adoption is the only thing that can legally change the past. It makes those children who've been abandoned as if they have always been in a family to care for them. And this is the picture, and this is the word that the Bible used to describe what happens when a sinner repents. That they have no right to this kingdom, they have no right to this family, they weren't born into this. Matter of fact, they were born antithetical to it, but yet Jesus in his grace secures our adoption on the cross so we can go to God and say, Abba, Father, good, good Father, thank you for making us princes and princesses in your kingdom, sons and daughters of a good high king. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.